All right. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, every Sunday morning, we go verse by verse through the word, sometimes even word by word if necessary. If you remember from the passage last week, verse 12 and 13, it was the apostle's application about everything that he's been saying since chapter 8 and on. He's been making his case beginning at chapter 8, verse 1, and then we got to 12 and 13 last week, and it was the apostle's application about everything that he had said before that. They've been engrossed in sin, the Corinthian church. They're using their Christian liberty, their freedom, in such a way that it's causing weak believers to fall into idolatry. And that's unacceptable. It brings reproach to the body of Christ, to the name of Christ, to Christ himself who has loved us so completely and rescued us. And so the apostle gives this warning that we went over last week that to anyone who would sin unrepentantly themselves and then cause another professing believer to sin, he issues them a threat, a warning. And it wasn't just an empty threat. It's a real threat based upon how God has in the past dealt with Israel, a warning that, in other words, that true believers will heed, a warning that true believers will hear and take into consideration and take to heart and then repent of the sin that they are involved in, a, a warning that God will actually persevere believers through. And then with the warning, with the threat, also came a promise. That was verse 13, a promise to remind them of the hope that they have in Christ Jesus because God himself is faithful, which also, of course, then that, that promise is also a way that God perseveres us, a way that he continues to bless us and keeps us in the faith. And now for this morning, idolatry itself is going to be in view. So let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. So the reading of the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, beginning at verse 14 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The blood that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I apply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he apply it to our hearts. Let's pray and ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for the preservation of your word and the testimony that it provides unto us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give to us eyes that see and ears that hear this morning, that you would search our hearts, and that you would conform us all the more to Christ. We depend upon you. We need you. We are so grateful that you are faithful to us, Lord. Help us this morning to draw near to you, knowing that you have promised to always be with us, and you are glorious in every way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so first up, what we have is the Corinthian problem in context. And so maybe you see what's going on here. 
the apostle is arguing for something that is it's really it's just so basic for us as Christians. It's Christianity 101, really. And that is this, that we must be solely devoted to Yahweh, that we must be solely devoted to Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no room for pluralism in the Christian life, and there's no room for what is called syncretism in the Christian life. Uh, pluralism is the notion that you can have your devotion spread out, that you can love something over here, then love something over there. It's the idea that says, I could be devoted to God, but then I could be devoted to something other than God as well. And you basically end up forming these little compartments into your life. Uh, you're devoted to God, but it's not a true devotion because your devotion is spread out. And so you have uh, whatever else it is, whatever idol, really, and, and it robs from God the devotion that he deserves from you, and therefore it provokes God to jealousy. It's the same thing that Jesus was going after in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, he tells us that no one can serve two masters. You remember that, I think. He says that a man will either end up loving one and hating the other. A person will either esteem one and despise the other. And, and, and then he applies it and says you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and, and material wealth. And you remember that, I trust. The point being is that when our devotion is spread out like that, when it's not, when we're not fully devoted to God, when we have our devotion moved about, we're never really devoted fully to anything. And in most cases of pluralism, one will learn to love the one and then actually hate the other, and will tend to drift in one direction rather than in another direction. And of course, we know what the classic hymn says, right? Our hearts are prone to to righteousness. No, not to rights, right? To wander. Right? And so if we have a pluralistic view about our lives in which we're not totally devoted to God, the reality is that eventually we're going to wander and we'll drift into being more devoted to that thing other than God. So pluralism needs to be rooted out of our lives and repented of. Syncretism is similar, but it's not the same thing. Syncretism is when you blend and combine religious doctrines and practices. And usually when that happens, people aren't trying to do or they're not trying to make something new when they're doing that, what they, what they often end up doing is they try and retain the more dominant position, the more dominant view, and then they simply add elements from this other religious system into it. And so from paganism or philosophy, whatever, another religion, whatever it is, you think of this really clearly actually in the Old Testament. We see it in Judges, in Kings, and in Chronicles where Israel was supposed to uh, to force out of the out of Canaan these surrounding nations, and they were supposed to be a light to them. But instead of doing that, they they became accustomed with their ways. We call it the Canaanization of Israel. They became just like their neighbors, and that was not pleasing to God. They they were guilty of syncretism, and so they worshipped Yahweh, the true God, in the same way that the pagans in the land they were supposed to drive out worshipped their false gods. So that's why you get to like Judges chapter eleven, for example. And Jephthah is, is, he has the Spirit come upon him to do a work for God to deliver Israel. And he makes this vow to God where he says, you know, if you grant me the victory, Yahweh, whoever comes out of my house, I'll, I'll offer to you a sacrifice. God is not pleased with human sacrifice, but that's what the people in the land would do. And so Israel and Canaan, they had synchronized that. And that's just the whole story of Judges. We sometimes think of Judges as a cyclical, you know, repeating event. And that's maybe true for the first couple of chapters. But really what Judges is, it's a downward cycle, a downward spiral of Israel becoming just like the people that they were supposed to be a light to and to be an example of, of God unto 
But it's not just um, for today, or it's not just not an ancient heresy, a syncretism, it's not just an ancient problem. It happens today as well, too. It's how the Roman Catholic Church evangelized much of the Caribbean and Southern America. And so you have Roman dogma mixed with voodoo, and then you have Roman dogma mixed with ancestor worship. Protestants aren't immune, of course. For a time, a pastor, Rick Warren, was trying to promote some version of what is called uh, Chrislam, which is what it sounds like, a blending of Christianity and Islam, and it began really in Nigeria in the 80s. But more, um, even recently even, professing Christians attempt to blend the faith with all kinds of mysticism, all kinds of so-called spirituality. And so you th you'll hear about things, and maybe even see things. So, um, one of these types of it, one example would be like a, what's called a prayer labyrinth. I've seen them myself. But you might see on the ground just a rock pattern, and it's got like paths in it. And the idea is that you're supposed to walk in this prayer labyrinth, and somehow, some way, your prayers are more effective because you're walking around this little labyrinth. That's, that's not Christianity. That's rank mysticism. That has nothing to do with Christ and his gospel. That's, not, that's syncretism. Another example would be a contemplative prayer. And so right, Joyce Meyer, Priscilla Schreier, Beth Moore, Francis Chan, many people have said that what you need to do is just totally empty your mind of everything. And then you contemplate on, on something that the Bible says and you listen for God's voice. Well, again, that's not what prayer is. You're, it's not about, you know, you could be filling your mind with a voice of the demon. We don't know what you're having your mind filled on. So contemplative prayer is just another syncretism, another example of syncretic, syncret, syncret, syncretism. We'll just say that. It's another example of syncretism. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, one other thing, the Enneagram, you know, that's this, it's this personality test that was devised from someone who is at odds with Christianity, a philosophical, a philosophical system that's at odds with Christianity. So there's all kinds of syncretism that goes on in the church as well today. We'll talk more about these things later. But again, there's, there's no room in Christianity for such things. God is a jealous God, and his jealousy is, is righteous and holy. Now, contrary to proper, popular beliefs today, all roads do not lead to God. Well, actually, you know, thinking about that, in a way, all, all roads do lead to God. Man is appointed to die but once, and then comes the judgment, and God is the arbiter of that judgment, but only one road will lead to God where you'll have the response, well done, good and faithful servant. It's the road, to stick with the analogy, that is built upon the righteousness of Christ alone, the justification and the sanctification that Jesus himself gives to us, the atoning work of Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection applied to us through saving faith, that, through the same faith that he gives us. Every other road to God leads to the righteous and holy wrath of God. And so syncretism must be repudiated. Now the problem for the Corinthians is that they live in a culture much like ours today. It's not too different than ours. But it's one that was ripe with pluralism and syncretism. They were saved out of such things. They were freed from such things, but they started, some of them started to be involved in such things again. And 1 Corinthians uh, 6 reminds us that such were some of you. You're no, you are no longer this in Christ. But some of them were going back to their old ways of life before they were Christian. And yet, here are the, Christ, here are the Corinthians buying into these old practices. Pastor John MacArthur writes, the subject of idolatry has arisen in 1 Corinthians because of the fact that some of the Corinthian Christians, in the name of Christian liberty, in the name of their so-called freedom in Christ, were attending idolatrous activities. 
They had decided that an idol is nothing, and they were right, an idol is nothing. We remember that. It's not a real deity. It's not comparable to God. Look back with me at chapter 8, okay? Because we need to be reminded of the context so that this will make sense to us. We want to be able to understand the point that he's driving home. So if we look back at chapter 8, he sets up food being offered to idols in verse 1. And then look at verse 4. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are, are many, there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we are, all, who, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So you see, these idols, they really are nothing. The idol certainly isn't the God that these pagans think that it is. And so consequently, for the Corinthians, they just think it's kind of insignificant. They think that it wouldn't hurt if Christians got involved with that sort of behavior because the idol's not even real anyways. Why does it matter? It's not even a real idol. It's not a real God. Well, me as a Christian, me as a person who knows the truth, I can be there. I can take part in this and benefit from the social or the political benefits that might come with that. That's what they thought. That's how the so-called or self-realized strong ones in the faith believed they could act. And Paul's point is really clear. It's even though that an idol isn't a real God, you're not free to do that. When they were doing it, they led people back to the patterns of idolatry that existed in their life before they professed life in Christ, or faith in Christ. And that's not okay. The Christian can never use his or her freedom to make another believer stumble back into some false sense of worship that will cause another professing Christian to have their testimony sullied. And so even though they thought eating meat offered to an idol or, or eating meat in a temple wasn't really a big deal because the deity itself wasn't a big deal because the deity, in fact, is fake, the act of doing so really was a big deal. You know, when we were in the world, when we had a, a worldly worldview, right? Before we were saved, we had a worldly worldview. By that I mean before we became Christian, the lens that we looked at the world with was formed by the world. It was shaped by the world. And that's true for everyone who is, a, who is not a Christian now even. People who are not converted to Christianity, people who are not born again, people who are unregenerate, they have assumptions about life and God that, and about what is right and about what is wrong. And it is all based upon what the world has taught them what their nature has communicated to them, their nature that's fallen in Adam. And they don't know the truth, and they walk in darkness according to Jesus in John 8, 12. But when a person comes to faith in Christ, it's like God flips that switch on. He turns on the switch, the light of the Son of God is shined upon us, and our worldview changes. We start by grace to call things that are good, good, and things that are evil, evil. But that old man, that old nature... It doesn't just totally disappear, especially not right that way. I mean, do you remember back to when you were converted? If you could remember when that happened, when you first received Christ by faith. When, you, when that first happened, did you at that moment have everything in your life aligned with the Word of God? All right, it, there's a process of sanctification. I didn't have everything aligned with, the, with, with God at that point. And the reality is, is that for all of us, we need to have areas in our life to continue to be aligned with the Word of God because for many of us, myself included, there are still blind spots that we have. 
areas of our life that are not conformed to God and his word. And I say they're blind spots because if we knew about them, then we would repent of them, right? And we would want to be pleasing to the Lord. We want to pursue him in the truth of his word. But they're blind spots. We'd want to make that change for his glory and for the sake of and the praise of his name. But this is why that man even, you know, who Jesus encountered, who wanted his son healed, he told him, he said, he said Lord, I, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. As, as we grow in Christ, we believe more. That's why the apostle elsewhere instructs us to renew our minds. Right? Our minds have to be renewed. It needs to be done. We grow in our sanctification by the grace that Christ applies to us. And so thinking about that, you have these Christians in Corinth now who have known, some of them have known the Lord for longer than others, and they have come to this understanding that since an idol wasn't anything, which is true, and that God wasn't too concerned about what we eat and drink, which is true, that it wasn't a, a problem for them to be engaged with the things that were happening in these pagan temples. And they didn't take into account how it might impact the one who was newer to the faith, who still had much of that vestige of their former manner of life influencing their thinking. And that's bad. When these weaker brothers and sisters saw them doing those things, they thought to themselves, well, I, I was just free from that, but here's this older brother, well, maybe I could go in there and do that. And then it led them back into idolatry. And we should never lead another brother or sister to deny the Lord. But it even gets worse. See, because not only did the Corinthians harm and defile a weaker brother, their supposed freedom actually put them outside of what is acceptable Christian behavior. We all realize that, I hope, right? That just because we are Christians, it doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we feel like doing. No, 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 no. That is not what it means to be a Christian. We don't get to do whatever we want. We're free to glorify Christ. We're free to live for him. We're free to enjoy him. We're free to keep the law of God, all Ten Commandments. And, and at the same time, we realize that those things are all good, and we have the desire to do them. And we understand that those are the best things for any person to be able to do because God has showed that to be true. But the knowledge that the Corinthians had went beyond that. They went beyond that, and it was a problem uh, actually, for them to be eating idol meat. They figured it wasn't a problem, and it certainly then also wouldn't be a problem to go to idol festivals. And so some of the Corinthian believers were beginning to get back into the practice of being socially and culturally and politically engaged with the world at this time in history. And that often, attended, that often meant attending idol feasts, these feasts that were built around the worship of an idol. And that brings us to what Paul is driving home now, that actually what they need to do is flee from idolatry. They, they can't mess around with this. And he's going to use arguments from the Lord's Supper, kind of in a negative sense, actually, we'll see, because the point here isn't actually to learn something about the Lord's Supper, although it turns out that we're going to, we learn something very profound about the Lord's Supper in that. But then he also uses an exa- a couple examples out of Israel once again, too. So let's look at this appeal that he begins with. He says, therefore... And we know what that what is meant by that, right? If we've taken any sort of studies in hermeneutics, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you're supposed to remember that it's calling you back to what was said prior to that. The argument doesn't exist in a vacuum. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, notes that this is a very strong and inferential therefore. And the word that it's translated from is actually only found two times in the New Testament. So it's a rare use of this word, therefore. But of course, the point then, is that his conclusion, which he's about to reveal, is based upon reasoning that he's already provided. In other words, the examples of Israel's idolatry that led to many of their deaths, 
within the context of the Old Covenant community, and the reality that such behavior, if not repented of, will expose them and lead to their death as well. It's verse 12 and verse 13. Remember, you can sum up verse 12 and verse 13 with the principle of take heed and remember the gospel. There are, there are real warnings given to us as true believers that, and that true believers will heed, but our confidence isn't in our ability to heed the warning. It's always in the faithfulness of God. And so take heed and remember the gospel. If you haven't listened to uh, last week's sermon, you can do that. It's online for us. But now, what we see in this section is that we also need to abide in Christ and flee from idolatry. This section works together with the last one to provide both warnings and encouragements to us so that we don't fall away, so that a Christian doesn't fall away. Because again, true believers hear these things and they respond in the faith that God has given to them. But again, just like last week, and notice the pastoral heart that the apostle has here. It's, therefore, my beloved. These people have not exactly been easy to deal with, right? There were some in the con- congregation who didn't even like Paul and his teaching. And so they had these factions where there were some people who were like, I'm not of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, the super spiritual ones. They're like, I'm of Jesus. Remember that back in the beginning of this letter. And he's been having to confront them on a number of serious sins, a number of serious issues that are stunting their growth, that are not bringing glory to Christ. But look at the Christian charity that he has towards them. We might be tempted to be in our flesh with this congregation, but these are his loved ones. Similar to to dear children, as John calls uh, the recipients of his letter. But it's more than just a recognition of Paul's feelings towards them in this context. It's the same word that God the Father uses of Jesus himself the Son of God, at his baptism and at his, trans- and at his transfiguration. You remember that? Perhaps there it's my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Ephesians 1.6 says that we have been accepted in the beloved. Who's the beloved? The beloved is Christ. And the same word that the apostle uses at the start of his letter to the Romans, where he calls the saints there beloved of God. And why would he do that? Well, it's because it's who we are in Christ. We share in the same loving sonship that Christ has from his Father. It's the benefit of the gospel. It's a benefit of the gospel. It's one of the blessings that we have in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul even told them in chapter 4 that he wasn't rebuking them in order to bring shame to them. He was doing it because of his love for them, because they were his beloved children. They are professing faith in Christ, and Christ is the beloved, and those with faith in Christ are appropriately and lovingly and rightly addressed as the beloved as well. But we don't really talk about, we don't really talk to each other in those terms today, do we? Like you never go up to your friend and be like, hey, what's up, what's up, beloved? You know, how you doing? We don't really talk in that manner today, but it's, it's the reality. It's who we are. We are beloved in the Lord. We are, because Christ is the beloved one. And you know, I'll say this too, I tried to make it understood that an understood thing for us before, not explicitly, but just kind of more implicitly, really. And maybe that's because I listen to sermons and I hear really more of the older pastors talking to the congregations like that. So like Spurgeon or, or Martin Lord Jones or even John MacArthur will often address their congregation as beloved. And so a few times uh, during the welcome, right before the pastoral prayer, I'll come up and I'll say, like I usually will say, good morning, church. And then I'll pause, and then, you know, within a second, there's a very cordial and loud response, good morning, right back. But a couple times, I tried to come up here, and, I, and, I, and I've said, you know, good morning, 
beloved, and then I wait, and there's like silence back. It's like, it's like, why is he calling us beloved? You know, it's not something that we're used to. Maybe you're caught off, off guard, and so I rushed all awkwardly into grace to you and peace from God the Father, because that's, that's from the Bible as well. And I'm just trying to be biblical when I say, you know, good morning, beloved. I'm not trying to be creative up here. And the reason for that is because that's who we are. We're beloved in the Lord. Paul's writing them out of a charitable, pastoral heart. That's our position in Christ. We're beloved of God because of who Jesus is. So moving on. And I'm not going to say good morning, beloved, next week. Don't you have to anticipate that or anything like that. <laughs> so, so there is this, therefore, beloved, and then now there's a straightforward prohibition followed right by it. All right? Therefore, beloved, now here comes the prohibition, flee from idolatry. This isn't the first time that the apostle has urged the congregation to flee from sin. Do you remember what he said before? It was a while ago, chapter 6. Flee from immorality. Yeah. Flee from porneia. The same idea is conveyed here. God is gracious, certainly. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But of course, we will still contend with sin in our lives. So verse 13 God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then verse 14, therefore my, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It flows like that. Okay, God is faithful, he is gracious, he will help you with the way of escape. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the flow. Idolatry, idolatry, just like sexual immorality, is a corruption. It's a transgression. It is sin that must, uh, sin that we must especially be aware of in our lives, because we need to flee from it. There needs to be intentionality in us with it when it comes to idolatry, so that we run away from it, so that we flee to Christ and we rest in His promises when we see idolatry raising up in our lives. In the Baker exegetical commentary, David Garland compares idolatry to, to radioactive, radioactive waste. And so the idea is like this. Imagine if you're taking a tour of a nuclear power plant, and everything's going great, you're with your family, and all of a sudden a, a warning goes off. The lights are flashing, and you hear somebody over the overcom say, there has been a, a leak, please evacuate the building. Well, you don't just casually you know, get your lunch packed up, and get it, get your you grab your kids and you get out of there because any contamination to this radioactive waste is going to be deadly. It's the same thing with idolatry. That, that's what he's wanting us to see here. You flee from idolatry. You don't play around with it at all. That's part of putting it to death. And it begs the question, of course, what really is idolatry? What, what actually is idolatry? Certainly here in our text, there is the concern of idolatry in the sense of someone eating meat that's offered to an idol. It's eating meat that was offered through a corrupt and dead faith to an idol, some demon or a figment of a fallen man's mind that is represented by wood, mortar, or precious metal. But idolatry is much more than that. Idolatry could be worshiping the true God in the wrong way. Idolatry doubts God. It slanders God. Idolatry replaces God with feelings, with another person, could be yourself even. Basically, anything could be raised to the status of an idol in your life. I mean, just think about it, recently in our own culture even, but even across the world actually, I think about it, safety has been an idol for so many people. Safety is good, of course, there's nothing wrong with safety, but we can make an idol out of it in an instant, and we've seen that. 
COVID is a real thing. It's a real virus, and, and in some rare cases, it can be deadly, and some people need, need to take more precautions than others. Absolutely, that's true. But the response across the world has been out of step with what it actually is. And so we're told, wear your mask, and you'll be safe. Uh, social distance, and you'll be safe. Stay inside, you'll be safe. Get a vaccine, you'll be safe. Well, maybe not. Maybe the vaccine could hurt you, and then even still, you can still get it. But the, the social media, the news outlets, they've all been unified in saying, you're not safe because of this virus. That's been the drumbeat. And make no mistake, be discerning. There's always going to be a variant of this thing. And you're always going to hear the, the, the call again to be safe. And what many people have done is made an idol out of this safety. The government has enjoyed the powers that's been given to them. I don't want to get off topic out of here, but again, we have to understand that people have made an idol out of safety, and they haven't done the things that they know they're supposed to do, all in the name of safety. The government has become an idol to some, even. Uh, people hanging on to what the government says, what the CDC says, as if it trumps the word of God. And for some, you know, the government has, has just become their God, and they're going to hear from the government, well done, good and faithful servant. But what is God going to say to you for neglecting the responsibilities that, that you have unto Christ? How clear of an idol was it even? They even told us how we're supposed to worship. It's an idol. Safety can be an idol. Further, idolatry is, a, is what we would call a root sin. It's a root sin behind many, then, of the fruit sins in our life. What do I mean by that? Well, often, why does a man cheat on his spouse? Why does he commit adultery? It's not simply just because of lust, usually. It's because he's made an idol out of himself. His feelings are of wanting to feel desired. And then that desire gets fed through the adultery. Or why does one covet and then end up stealing? It's often because that person has an idol of what their life should look like or what they want to be in their life. And the Reverend Kent Hughes says this, he says, Idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. Idolatry shows up in the twists of ordinary desires and activities, eating, drinking, playing, marrying, etc. The activities and desires are often not ends in and of themselves, but they are means to another end. Personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, control, safety, etc. That's, that's good, he's right. There are more examples we could list, but what we really need to see is that an idol isn't always something that exists outside of us. That's not what an idol always is. But what we really need to see is that it's pretty rare for that to be the case, actually. You know, they, idols aren't just those statues that you see in Roman Catholic churches. You have to be on guard more than that. For most people, from the fall and the garden on, idolatry is something that exists in our hearts. It's not the, not the beating muscle in my chest. I don't know why I'm touching my chest right now. That's not what I mean. I'm not going to mean the heart. I mean that place where your desires are born, where your will operate, operates out of. John Calvin, of course, famously said, the human heart is a factory of idols. And that's where you'll need to flee. You need to flee from those idols that exist in your heart. Anything that takes the place of God in your heart, you flee. You don't indulge it. Whatever it is, even if you think it's good, not. You flee from it. And the apostle is going to give a real powerful argument here as to why we must do that. But first, this is verse 15. He says, I speak as, sens I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, perhaps here we should just take this as face value. He is complimenting them. They're sensible people. After all, they are his beloved. 
And he did chide them for their knowledge, if you remember back, and for being puffed up in their knowledge back at the beginning of the section in Romans, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But here it seems as if he's really appealing to them to judge what it is that he's saying. To see how sensible his argument is based upon their involvement with the Lord's Supper, which we'll use an example in the coming verses. And note, he's not saying judge for yourselves as to the rightness of the wrong or the wrongness of what he's about to say. Relativism is popular in our day, but it's never been right. Everything is not relative. There's a standard of objectifiable truth, and God's word is true. And we as people never stand above the word of God as judges of it, okay? God's God actually stands above us in his word to judge us. We never flip that. And so that's not what Paul is saying here when he says to judge what I'm saying. He's not trying to see whether, he's not telling them to judge whether he's right or wrong. He's simply telling them to judge that he's right because this is the inspired word of God. To judge that idolatry is a horrible offense to God and that we must flee from it. It's based, and it's going to be based upon the arguments that follow. Verse 16 and 17, he brings to light an argument from the Lord's Supper. And this is good and helpful for us. In verse 16, he makes two points, one based on the cup and then one based on the bread. And it's nearly an identical point. And then in verse 17, he's going to make another point of application that has sweeping implications for us. So the first points he makes goes like this. The cup of blessing that we bless, it is participation in the blood of Christ. And then secondly, the bread that we break, it is participation in the body of Christ participation in the blood, and then participation in the body. And remember, he's, his intent really here is not to specifically tell us some things about the Lord's Supper. That's not the main point of the text. And so this isn't everything that we need to know about the Lord's Supper. He's building up to a point about idolatry. And in doing so, he ends up actually telling us something very profound about the Lord's Supper. It's something that we do on a regular basis, of course. And he's going to actually spend time teaching about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. But at this point here, we get insight into the sacrament that we don't have anywhere else in the New Testament. Not as, not as clear, at least. And so we remember again what he says. First, the cup of blessing. Well, what is the cup of blessing? What's the name that was given to the third cup in the Passover feast? Is that, is that right, Lauren? The third cup is the cup of blessing? That's what, okay. The third cup in the Passover, they had four cups of wine, and the third cup would be called the cup of blessing. They were all consumed during the Passover feast. And it's very possible, some commentaries suggest this, but we don't know for sure, but it's possible that at the time of this third cup being brought forth at the Passover feast, that's when the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing at that point. Uh, when he established communion at Passover, it may have been at the point of the third cup, which was called, again, the cup of blessing. But what it basically means is the cup which God has blessed, or the cup which Christ has blessed. And you remember that at the Last Supper, there in that upper room, Jesus took the cup and he did what with it? He blessed it, right? He gave thanks for it. It's just a regular cup of ordinary wine, but all of a sudden, it becomes set apart as something special for special use, to commemorate the death of our Lord until he comes again. It's the cup of the new covenant, the cup uh, made in his blood, and we bless it when we take communion together as well, don't we? We thank the Lord for it. Now, we do it a little bit differently than they do, right? We don't have a common cup that is shared and then passed around. I know what my wife thinks about that, but how do you guys feel about not sharing a common cup? Good thing? <laughs> you okay with it? I'm okay. I'm okay with it, too. I'm all right with it. Uh, I think it's a circumstance of worship, the fact that it's just one cup. It's not an element that's being neglected. It's just a circumstance. Now, we may not have a common cup, but the idea isn't totally lost. There is a commonality about it still. It's all poured out of a singular bottle. We all take it together. 
we're all here at the property together when we partake of it, when we observe it. It's shared between us. The same thing is true of the bread. We make our own bread here. By the time it's on those trays, it's these little pieces. Squares we use a pizza cutter to slice them because it's easier than just having a loaf up here, a sheet really is what it is, and then just breaking pieces off. It's one bread. And so it's here where we read that it's participation in his blood and participation in the blood of Christ and then participation in the body of Christ. That's interesting. Participation here is a word that you might be familiar with, actually. I remember a few years back, maybe a decade ago or so, it was really popular for Christian ministries to be named after this word. It's the Greek word koinonia. You heard of that word before, koinonia, fellowship? I don't know why, I mean, I'm not complaining, but it seemed like there used to be some koinonia ministry, you know, a new one popping up every few weeks or so. So what he's saying here is that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we have koinonia with the body. We have koinonia with the blood of Christ. It, it means fellowship. It means to commune. It's communion with the blood, communion with the body when we observe the sacrament. So think about what's happening here. We are fellowshipping. We are having communion, koinonia with Christ, participating in the body and, the, and his blood when we partake when we observe this sacrament. That's why it's only for believers. That's why we don't invite people who aren't believers to take of it. Reason being, how is a person who is not believing communing with Christ? They're not, right? They're that enmity with the Lord. They don't have, when someone is not a believer, they don't have fellowship with the Lord. And so if you're not a believer, because observing the sacrament is truly koinonia with Christ, you shouldn't take this. Because it's only for those who are in fellowship with the Lord. And, and that's why in chapter 11, he'll explain how some who shouldn't be taking it because they lack faith come under the judgment of God for doing so. But then also, and this is really good for us to know, that those of us with faith, when we participate with the sacrament, it's actually much more than a memorial. Now you see Paul saying that, that we are participating with Christ in it, that we have koinonia with him in it when we partake of it in faith. It's more than just memorializing his death. For the person that has faith, saving faith, gifted to them by God, this is communion, communing with Christ and his work. So the reformer John Knox would say this about it, that we receive Christ spiritually when we partake of the Lord's Supper. In other words, that Jesus makes himself available to us as a fountain of grace to help us grow and sanctify us as we commune with him through the, through the sacrament. That's why we always say you don't have to be perfect to, to partake of this, because number one, nobody is perfect, but you simply have to be a believer and come to the table to receive grace from Christ at that time, because we need grace. And we are actually having fellowship with him when we partake of it in faith. So many people have missed this element of the Lord's Supper. Many evangelicals just leave it as a memorial, but it's more than that. There is a spiritual presence of Christ, and we have koinonia with him when we participate in the Lord's table, when we have the faith given to us by God uh, at our regeneration, when we were born again. That's not, by the way, that's not the Roman Catholic teaching. That's not transubstantiation. Ironically, for our topic this morning, by saying that the elements become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, they in fact are turning in the table to an idol then. Right? That's what the Roman Catholics end up actually doing. The Lutherans tried to correct the Roman error, and they, they landed on what's called consubstantiation, meaning that the elements don't actually become the actual blood and body of Christ, but that the actual physical blood and body of Christ is, is in, under, and around the elements. That's wrong as well. 
That's going too far. But we need to realize, though, that observing the Lord's Supper is, in fact, participating with the body and blood of Christ. There is a spiritual benefit given to us in it. The passage, among others, will lead the Puritan Stephen Charnock to conclude this. He says, There is in this, meaning the Lord's Supper, there is in this action more communion with God than in any other religious act. We have not so near communion with a person either by petitioning for something we want or returning him thanks for a favor received, as we have by sitting with him at his table, partaking of the same bread and the same cup. In other words, what other religious act does God say that we are having, that we are participating with him in like this? None, right? It's only the Lord's table that he's specifically drawing his attention to here. And then he says, Charnock is, he says, Christ is really presented to us, and faith really takes him closes with him, lodges with him in the soul, makes him an indweller, and the soul has spiritual communion with him in his life and death, as if we really did eat his flesh and drink his blood presented to us in the elements. You see what Charnock is driving at, I hope, that observing the Lord's table isn't just something that we do. It's not this rote activity that, that just simply memorializes Christ's death. It's more than that. We are, in fact, when we participate as believers with faith, we are communing with the Lord and our, our Savior. It's a means of grace in our life. So we should approach the table, and we'll be doing this next week, by the way. Of course, next week is the first Sunday of the month. When we do that, because this is all true, because we are having koinonia with Christ at that time, we need to do it with reverence. We need to do it with seriousness because of what is happening at that time. Because we are, through faith, spiritually meeting Christ in the elements. The seventh article in chapter 30 of the Second London Baptist Confession says this. It says, worthy recipients, not worthy, not meaning in the sense of that, like, oh, you're more worthy than another person because you're better than them. That's not what he means. Worthy in the sense that you have been born again. Worthy in the sense that you have, you are a Christian. You've been identified with Christ. It says, worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in his ordinance, also by faith, inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. Okay, so the Lord's table is more than memorial. That's a good summary. And one more thing to point out to you, maybe this stood out to you, maybe not. He reverses the order. Did you notice that? That he mentions the cup before he mentions the bread. And this is the only place in Scripture that that's actually done. Uh, if, you, if you look at the next chapter where he teaches about the Lord's Supper, it's, it's not that way. It, it's bread first and then the cup. But if you consider the gospel accounts in which the Lord instituted the sacrament, it's bread first, then the cup. If you consider John 6, where Jesus first alludes to telling the crowd about eating his body and drinking the blood, the order is always reversed. It's always bread first, then cup. This is the only place in Scripture where the order is reversed. And the reason for that is the application that he's going to make based off of the, the communion that we have with the bread. So this is verse 17. This is the application of what he's just said about koinonia, especially koinonia with the body. And this is just really interesting. He says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 17. And so there's this sort of interesting little parallel here with the body. So because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. In other words, we're bound together through Christ. Because we all partake of the one bread. There is unity between us. We are fellow participants. We are fellow sharers of Christ and of each other. 
and, and this fact is that there is supposed to be a unity and a bond expressed by the bread and in it a fellowship of the deepest kind that transcends anything else in this world even. I'm reminded of Ephesians 4 here, I think, as well, right? Remember what Ephesians 4 says when the Apostle Paul is speaking about unity in the church that all true Christians have with each other throughout the ages? He says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. And, oh, excuse me, over all. And so there's this idea put forth in the Lord's Supper in which we all partake of one bread. That means we who are many, we all become one. One body, the body of Christ, because of Christ. And so maybe you found this to be true as well, but I have a deeper bond with someone who is in Christ than I have with my own flesh and blood, who are not in Christ. Not to minimize the bond that we share with our flesh and blood at all. That, that's not to do that, or our, our adopted children, or even our spouses. That's a real bond. And praise God that some of our flesh and blood are in Christ, and then it's like we have a double bond. But, but the bond in Christ is always deeper and always more profound because it's eternal and because Christ is uniting us. And listen, it transcends everything that might divide us. You know, we live in a world today that is attempting to divide people any way that they can. We live in a world today that is being built upon division. And we're divided over skin color, over gender, over social class, over the haves and the have-nots, over politics. And some division, of course, is necessary, right? Uh, we can't have fellowship with the world. The apostle will get into that in the next chapter. But whereas like intersectionality and critical race theory are bringing division over perceived power structures and past sins, the church is diametrically different than that. CRT and intersectionality is absolutely demonic. I thought we've talked about those things many times before, but it, it actually makes these divisions. It's, it, 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 professes to heal them, but it's actually what's making these divisions. And we mustn't forget, church, that it's the gospel. It is the gospel that is the only thing that can unite mankind. It is the gospel that brings reconciliation, and it's what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here, and he speaks about it plainly as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As a matter of fact, the worst division in the world, the one sort of division that everyone needs to be concerned with, is that people are not reconciled to God. And they must be. Otherwise, they'll remain under his holy and just wrath. But when a person is reconciled to God, we then are also given the ministry of reconciliation, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And that reconciliation unites us not only to God, and we also then at that point seek to make others reconciled to God, but also we are reconciled to each other. Any sins, any cultural thing that might divide us, it's done away with in the gospel. We are one body. Paul says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male or female, neither slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, heirs with him according to the promise of God. And for us to participate in the Lord's Supper, the simple act of it is proclaiming that we have unity with God and unity with those who participate in faith and transcends every other sort of distinction that might exist. The Apostle brings slide another example. Another one in light of something that happened in Israel, which, of course, verse 11 reminds us it happened for our instruction. So notice verse 18. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Now, in many other translations, if you have maybe the NASB today or the King James Version or something like that, it's translated, Consider Israel after the flesh. I don't think we need to make a big stink about that translation. If you remember from last week, I attempted to show that there are some distinctions that we should be aware of between Israel and the church when we speak of Israel and the church. 
Israel is a type of the church. The church, properly speaking, is true Israel, or said differently, spiritual Israel, because Christ is true Israel, and the church is the body of Christ. We're united to Christ. But also, Israel as a nation was made up of true believers and then also false believers. The structure of true believers and false believers was built into the Old Covenant. Whereas in the New Covenant, there are only actually true believers in the New Covenant because the New Covenant is made in Christ's blood. And so when false believers are discovered in the church, which is supposed to be the New Covenant people of God, we practice church discipline because the New Covenant only has believers in it. But I don't think that if your translation says Israel after the flesh, I don't think the apostle is trying to make a distinction here about true Israel and, and fleshly Israel, carnal Israel, or something like that. He's just simply saying, remember the people of Israel, as the ESV translated. That's a, that's a good translation. So remember, this is what he was doing in, in chapter 10, 1 through 11. He says, continuing in verse 18, the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What's he getting at? He's making a point. He's done it already with the right Christian sacrament of the Lord's table. And now he's going to do an example of Israel. And he's making the point that engaging in acts of worship causes us to commune with the God or the idol and the others who are participating in that worship. So verse 18, consider the history of Israel. The altars there refers to the altar of God. And when they came to the sacrifice, when they went to the temple or to the tabernacle or to the synagogue, didn't they all partake? Didn't they give some of the food to the priests for them to eat? Some of it was burned up by God, for God. So part of the sacrifice went to God. Part of it went to the priests. And other worshipers were involved as well, right? And then part of it was kept. There was involvement from everyone. Israel was involved in the sacrificing. They were involved with each other. And they were involved with God. And so what is he saying then? Participation in religious rites has a deep spiritual meaning. It implies a real union a real communion between the worshipers and the ones being worshipped. The Lord's table is the same thing. That's what he's saying. These aren't just route activities that people are engaging in. And therefore, you can't do this with idols. You can't do this in a place where paganism is happening, even though the idol isn't real. You can't do it without having that same communion. That's Paul's point. Worship is identification. It's communion with whoever is being worshipped. And so for Israel... In verse 18, communion with the altar for the Jews meant fellowship with God and everybody else at the altar. Communion with Christ, the Lord's Supper, for the Christian means fellowship with Christ and everybody else at his table. Communion with the feast of an idol means fellowship with that idol and everyone else who's there as well. That's the point he's driving to. He knows that they know this is true. That's why verse 16 and 18 are both framed as rhetorical questions. Did you notice that? Verse 16 and 18 are both asked as rhetorical questions. He knows that they know the answer, that true communion exists when you participate in religious acts. And so he clarifies with another rhetorical question in verse 19, because the Lord's table, their communion with the true God, he exists. In Israel, they commune with the altar, it's the true God, he exists. But obviously, based upon his previous testimony in chapter 8, idols are nothing. They aren't true. And so he answers the question posed in verse 19 himself in verse 20. He says, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. That's the distinction, you see. The church, then also Israel, they communed with God. They had koinonia with God. It was God-ordained worship in the Old Covenant and then also in the New Covenant. But here in Corinth, at these pagan feasts, they are sacrificing to demons and not to God. And so this is the force of his argument now. 
He doesn't want the saints in Corinth, these people who know that there are no other gods but God, who think that their Christian liberty entails them the right to do this, since they know that, that there is no other gods, that they can simply attend these pagan feasts. The apostle is saying that it doesn't work like that. In fact, because these pagan offerings are being offered to demons, and you're there with them, even though you're not sacrificing the demons yourself, the fact that you're there engaged means that you are, in fact, participating with the demons themselves. That pulses the idol of the demon. And so you see how wicked it is for them to be doing this. They have become partners with demons unknowingly. They are guilty of syncretism at best, pluralism at worst. This would be an example of pluralism if they knew what they were doing. They thought perhaps it was something that they could do because of the grace of God, but more likely it's an example of syncretism. They are blending and combining two different religious practices and not seeing the seriousness of the sin. Imagine what's happening here, okay? You have these supposedly mature believers in Corinth who know that there's only one God. And, and so six days a week, you can find them in the city courtyards, you can find them in the pagan temples in Corinth, and they are engaging in social activity, eating meat offered to idols. They're sitting there, in the temple even, while the meat is being offered to the idols, and then the meat gets passed around and they eat. And so you have young Christians who are outside, and they see you know, these newer Christians, and they see this happening, and it's causing them to stumble. It's convicting them. But there's no conviction for these guys in the temple because they have convinced themselves that it doesn't matter, that the idols aren't real. And so for the better part of six days a week, they are eating meat, sacrificed idols, and then on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, they go to church and they partake of the table of the Lord. They find themselves gathered with the church and they partake of communion with Christ. And Paul's point in verse 21 can't be any clearer. It's you need to stop. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. People are dying because of this, we'll read in chapter 11. What fellowship, what koinonia does light have with darkness? Nothing, right? What fellowship does Christ have with Baal? What fellowship does the church have with the world? You can't partake of the Lord, the table of the Lord, and then also the table of demons. These things don't mix, church. And so we need to know, we need to realize that syncretism is a lie. We can't mix a little CRT with our faith. You can't attend the Bible study at the Mormon church. Well, maybe if you're there as like a prophetic witness to call them to repentance, maybe that would be okay. But you, you can't attend you know, a Bible study with Mormons or with Jehovah Witnesses. You can't attend the Roman Catholic Mass with your grandma on Christmas. This is all syncretism, and we need to repudiate it. The apostle is saying it's that serious. You, even, if you're not, even if you don't believe it yourself, right? That's what he's saying. You are participating because you're there. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. We can't walk in darkness and at the same time tell ourselves we are in the light. Remember for that in the call of worship this morning. And so the apostles' warning from just a few verses ago to the Corinthians was, if this is you, take heed lest you fall. And then the apostle appeals to another reality put forth to us in the Old Testament. And this is how he closes his case here at this point. If you notice verse 22, it's another rhetorical question. Two of them, in fact. The apostle knows the answer to them. He expects his audience to know the answer, and we certainly know the answer to these questions. A kindergartner, uh, Maisie, can answer this question correctly, for sure. This is because this is what the Corinthians are doing when they're engaged in relig religious activity in these pagan temples. It's idolatry. And so listen to what he says. He says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And the answer to both churches is, of course, what? It's just no. <laughs> no. It's obviously no. Who is stronger than God? No one. Nobody. And who would intentionally want to offend God? No one that loves the Lord, at least, right? 
So the apostle is actually once again appealing to the Old Testament as an example for us. Remember those events that were written down for our instruction? We had a little bit more time, I would say. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32. You can look there later. But he lays out exactly what's happening in Deuteronomy 32, especially um, verse 22 is where, where it really comes to light. He, um, he mentions a lot of things that the apostles already mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 10. And then he eventually talks about sacrificing to demons and eventually that that is going to provoke the Lord to jealousy. And it's really ironic as well, too, because it was only a few years ago when you had a popular evangelical teacher, Andy Stanley. Do you remember him saying in this church that we were supposed to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament? Do you remember him saying that? As a matter, that's exactly what a faith, what, exactly the opposite of what a faithful Bible teacher does, right? That's exactly the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is doing. He spent this whole chapter calling us back to the Old Testament because these things were written to us as an example. And you know what it actually is? When someone, and the reason Andy Stanley did this is because he wanted to not have a, a offense for someone who was lost. And he, he thought that the Old Testament has, you know, the holiness of it and the miracles that are contained in it were a problem for new believers. And so he says, unhitch the Old Testament from your faith. What that really is, church, is secretism. It's secretism with the world. It's buying into the world's philosophies as a way of saying this is what the church needs. Right? It's the exact error that Paul is talking about here in the church to Corinth. So if you can, this idea of God being jealous, it's, all, it's, it's in the second commandment as well. But Deuteronomy 32, you can look there later. Should the Corinthians provoke the Lord to jealousy? No. That's absolutely what they don't want to do. Look what it, it, lead, it leads to. It, it will lead to a, a fire. God's anger is, 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 is compared to a fire in Deuteronomy 32. It's like his anger is kindled, a fire that burns to the depths of Sheol to the grave. And God is an all-consuming fire. We mustn't put him to the test. We mustn't make him jealous. This action here by the Corinthians, this isn't something that they should be trifling with. God demands, and he should get our undivided devotion. He's a jealous God and a righteous God. He is jealous for the worship that he deserves. Now, if God wasn't God, if he wasn't infinitely glorious, if he wasn't majestic in righteousness and perfect in all of his ways, then his jealousy would not be righteous. But he is those things. And we people, certainly those of us who call ourselves the church, we owe God worship because of who he is, because of what he has done for us. He's saved us. He's redeemed us. He's given to us the righteousness of Christ. He views us as his sons and his daughters. He's worthy of worship, and he's rightly jealous if he doesn't get it. Because of the covenant we're in, because of who God is, it would be sin for God to not be jealous if we didn't worship him with undivided devotion. Let me illustrate this for us. And really, if you like Christian rap, uh, you can Google a song called The Jealous One by Silent. He does a really good job explaining it there. But here's, here's the scenario. Let's say you have a husband and a wife, and the wife is always going out with other men, and maybe, you know, romantically even. And the husband sees it, and he just does what? He does nothing. He has no sense of what is owed to him in the marriage covenant. Wouldn't it be strange for that to be the case? You should expect the husband to be jealous. If he's not jealous, would you even think that he actually loves her? Jealousy in this sort of context is, in fact, righteous. And, and God says the same thing here, but it's to an infinite degree because God is much holier than any husband is. And the bride of Christ, obviously, is compared to a woman in Scripture. And so we're not stronger than God. We can't get our way here. God desires for us to be devoted to him and to worship him alone. 
We need to flee from idolatry. That's how serious it is, church. We must flee from idolatry. But how do we actually do it? How do we not be guilty of idolatry? How can we be sure that we're only communing with Christ in the body and the blood of Christ? Well, friends, it's not a mystery. It's not a secret truth that only a few can find out. God tells us plainly, he tells us plainly, Jesus himself tells us plainly in John chapter 15, the key is to abide in Christ. The key to fleeing from idolatry is to abide in Christ. Now, at first glance, that sounds like law. It sounds like it's something that you have to do. If it's something that you have to do, then properly speaking, that's not good news. But if you think about it, that's not the point of what it means to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ, which is going to help you flee from idolatry, means to rest in the promises of God to us in Christ. In John 15, the section where Jesus explains abiding, it begins by saying that we were already clean because of the word that Jesus has spoken to us, the word of his power, the word of his regenerating grace. And then out of that, we produce good fruit. But to abide means that we have it in our hearts, in our mind, in our soul, that we are already clean that we are declared righteous in Christ. We are to live every day trusting in the promises of Christ that we've been adopted, that we've been set free, that we've been cleansed, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, meaning that we are trusting in Christ to be the sufficient substitute in our place. When we abide in Christ, we aren't trusting in the law, we're not trusting in our own obedience, but we're trusting in Christ. And we're trusting in His obedience. In his righteousness, we may have been heavy laden, but he gives us rest. Christ, friends, he is greater than any idol. Brothers and sisters, to him, to the Father, to the Son, to the Spirit, be glory. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, we know that there are idols in our life. We know certainly that before we came to you, there were many idols that we constructed. And even now, Lord, we, we are aware at least of the possibility that there could be idols in our life. And so we pray for grace that you might point these things out to us, that we might flee from them. Help us, Lord, to abide in Christ, to, to not then trust in our own ability. We don't even bank on our ability to flee from idolatry what we are truly trusting in and hoping in is the grace that you have supplied to us in Christ. Our only boast is Christ. He is our Savior, and so we pray that you would help us to be fully devoted to you. We don't want to have communion, Lord, with anything else. We want our communion to be only with you, for you are worthy of all worship and adoration. Help us, Lord. We, we need you, and we are so grateful that you are faithful, that you have promised to give us a way out of temptation. And, and when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to serious sins like this, Lord, help us simply to flee. Let us see that that's the way of escape. Give us grace. We need it, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.